Thanks for downloading this podcast from RNIB Connect Radio. Born with a hole in his heart, Stephen Sunderland suffered a stroke at a very early age. He struggled greatly through school, being bullied and finding it difficult to integrate. Stephen joins us to tell us his life story and to share some of the good experiences he's had since becoming an RNIB connector. Stephen, many thanks for joining us here in the studio today. Now, you lost your sight in a really dramatic way, actually, because I've never heard of of this before, but you lost your sight due to a stroke when you were only six months old. Yes, I did. Um, Thank you very much for having me on, Joe. Um, I had a stroke at the age of six months during my second heart operation. My first one was, I think, just after the day of my birth, or might even been on the same day as my birth. Um, and then I, I also had an, another heart operation six months down the line. And then I, I, that's when I lost my sight. I lost my sight, I think it was either due to surgical error or maybe one of the machines weren't working to full capacity and I lost oxygen to my brain and the back of the brain suffered some damage and that's where the sight had then started to deteriorate. No, it's an incredible story. It really is. I mean, I've never heard of such a thing, particularly at, at such a young age. I do know that you were born with a, a massive hole in your heart and that's what the operations were for. But I had no idea that you could have a stroke at, at such a young age as a baby having an operation and it could lead to your sight loss. Your parents must have been absolutely beside themselves. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, yeah, it was a horrendous time for my parents. They were constantly up at the hospital. Um, I had an older brother who at the time was two years old, very, very young, and didn't, didn't know where his mum and dad was because they were always up at the hospital. Um, they didn't really want my big brother being in the hospital all the time that they were there, so he was left with manties and uncles and things. So he didn't get to see his mum as often as what he should have. So again, it had a huge impact on my family. Me, maybe, um, not so much at that age, because I didn't know what was happening. Now, obviously, now suffer the effects of it. Um, growing up, um, my education at school was badly affected by it. And so, uh, yeah, it was just it was a really just a really difficult experience for everybody who was, who was involved, I think. Tell us a bit about your education. Did you go to a mainstream school or, you know, were you in a visual impairment class in a mainstream school or were you at a school specifically for blind people? I was at Linwood High School, which is a mainstream school. They didn't have a visual impairment unit. In terms of help, it was very, very limited. I was a big music type of person. I played the drums every single morning. I would go in about half eight and I would play the drums up until the first bell, which was about five to nine. Um, I had people outside listening and things, but see, when it came to my exams, I couldn't play the drums because I didn't have the materials there to be able to play them. They, they were really, really big on you being able to read the music, which is something I simply couldn't do because of, obviously, the vision wasn't good enough to be able to do that. So that that had a really big um, effect, um, not just for the music, but with any class. There was a lot of times where, for instance, the history class it was predominantly copying things from a, a board, a whiteboard. I was away a good few metres away from the board. I couldn't see a thing on it. It was horrendous because I simply didn't get the help I should have got, basically just going through the education system the same as any other non-visually impaired person would. You know, you hear about this happening quite a lot, whether it be with people who are visually impaired and, you know, the teachers 
aren't fully aware of the the situation or ignore it. You hear it with people who are dyslexic. I went to school with a dyslexic girl that was just deemed thick, stupid Uh, by every teacher. And yet this girl was so intelligent to talk to this girl she was so highly intelligent and the most beautiful artist you could ever meet so you know unless people are kind of made aware of these things and you know, you've really got to fight for help don't you yeah you do um, <laughs> the amount of fighting we did at school um to try and give me extra assistance at school was unbelievable it was essentially nearly every day um, i had my parents around arguing with teachers arguing that my vision was a lot more damaged than what they originally thought. We couldn't explain specifically what it was because when I first started school, particularly primary school and in most high school, we didn't know why my vision was the way it was. I didn't know I had a stroke until I was 12 years old, which is a lot longer than when the actual stroke had occurred, which was at the age of six months. So I had a 11 and a half year gap of not knowing why my vision was so bad. So eventually they started, to, um, the hospitals got things like MRI scans and my mum demanded, and I say the mum demanded because she did just demand that I get one. And that's when I first found out the brain was damaged. It was crazy because I, I went through the whole school using different lenses for glasses, constantly getting told you need to wear your glasses, they'll help you and... I kept taking them off because the glasses would just irritate my eyes, causing me more pain. And the reason for that was because my eyes were not the problem. With wearing glasses, my eyes were basically getting more strained. And so I was constantly, personally, battling against the teacher saying, look, these are not working. And if you don't believe me, then I'll be and talk to my, my opticians or my parents or whatever, and they'll, they'll tell you. Because I, I'm, I'm, I eventually got to the point where I'm, I'm saying, well, I'm not going to bother arguing with you anymore, because I'm, I'm bored there. <laughs> of course. And, and, you know, why wouldn't you feel that way? I just think it's terrifying that, as young parents, you tend to listen to what your doctor says and you take it for granted. And I know that there's times in my life when I was losing my sight, that, you know, I just took it for granted that the doctors were right. And I look back now with the information I have now and the kind of wealth of experience I have working with RNIB and speaking to people over the years, that there's so much more I could have done. And yet I thought I was doing everything at the time to help myself. And so did my parents. So it's a very, very difficult time for parents with a young child. And then to find out, you know, 11 and a half years later, you'd had a stroke. And on top of that, you were diagnosed with another eye condition. Now, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this because this <laughs> this is worth a lot in Scrabble. This is yeah. all I can say. It but sure is. <laughs> what is this secondary eye condition you were diagnosed with? This is down to the optic nerve damage, or as, as far as I know, it's down to opne- optic nerve damage, a side effect of the stroke. The condition is called hermonymous hermanopsia. As you say, it's a good Scrabble word. I don't know how to spell it. I took a few attempts to be able to pronounce it properly. Um, yeah, it basically means that you, you've lost the majority of your peripheral vision. Your um, central vision is very weak. You see colours, but you can't see details. I can't see face expressions whenever I'm out and about. People talking to me, if they don't talk directly to me and say my name first, it's quite often or not I'll, I won't answer back. Because I don't know they're speaking to me. And, and back when I was getting my lunch just before this interview, the um, girl at the cafe says, was it a bottle of juice you wanted? And I wasn't sure that she was speaking to me, because she, she obviously didn't know my name. But she was looking directly at me, but I didn't see her looking directly at me. Although I found out afterwards, because she told me. <laughs> and so it, it took me a few seconds to be able to 
reply. So it's things like that that you pick up on, and it's, it's tricky to live with, but you find your own ways of getting around it, I suppose. Now, your education obviously suffered from what you're saying. What about your social life at school? I mean, were kids good to you, or were you bullied? Hey, hmm. Yeah, um, I was bullied for quite some time in high school. Bullying maybe of came about sort of around about the sixth year of primary school, but before that, I can't really remember that kind of far back. But I do know at high school it was it was quite bad. I don't know if it was just because they see me as a weaker person, or whether it was intimidation, or, or whatever the reasons were. I do not know, but yeah, there was a, an element of bullying there. There was some support from some of the the other class students, but nothing really that you can say was brilliant. <laughs> it's it, you know. You think that there's something wrong with you when you've been bullied and it's actually years on from being bullied myself that I realise it's actually on the person that's bullying you. There's something wrong with them. It's not you. Now, I didn't have any form of visual impairment at school. I was picked on because of my accent. I had, you know, come back from Southern Ireland where I grew up. I was living here for a while. I had a much more kind of Irish accent. I was bullied for that. I was bullied for a number of different reasons. And actually, it stays with you, doesn't it? Bullying stays with you for the rest of your life. And it really affects your relationships going forward with people in the future. It does, yeah. It takes a knock on confidence. But again, I think it's down to someone to get their confidence back up after the school period is over. I mean, I'm surprised to hear that you were bullied for your accent. I mean, I thought that would be something that people would be interested in hearing about. Well, it's funny. I mean, I was in high school Mm. and it was just something that people picked on. That's why I'm saying, you know, a, a lot of the young adults we've had through the studio have experienced terrible bullying at school and I think sometimes they think it is solely because of their visual impairment but sometimes it can be something as silly as an accent that just turns a group of people on you and it can be soul destroying and it did affect me for many years and it affected my trust in people but I think the best revenge for me was not to bully back or be violent back or do anything like that it was to be successful absolutely um, that's one thing I've always always found um, after leaving school was that a lot of my friends went on to do um, jobs in shops where they would be like packing shelves or working on checkouts and things which is okay you know it's Fair enough, that's what most people start off with doing. But I, I came into RNIB not long ago, um, just at the end of last year. And within the last few months, you would not believe the amount of things that I've been involved with since coming here. I'll give you a list of some of the things I've did. I've got involved with the RNIB Connect Group for Scotland. I've been involved with the RNIB Young People's Connect Group for the United Kingdom. Coming this March, I'm going to be a member of the Scottish Youth Parliament. Out with the RNIB, I've also been in hospital broadcasting radio did a couple of interviews like this one for connect radio and i help a physically disabled group on a tuesday at a day center in glasgow and i also help a learning disability group over in glasgow as well so i do a whole range of different things throughout the week all it's volunteering and it it gets me traveling around the country Um, in march i'm going to be going down to london for the first time ever but i'll be doing it on my own so that in itself is a daunting task, but I'm looking forward to it, because I know it's something that, despite with it being a big challenge, I'm, I'm sure I can do it no bother. And so it's, it's, it's like you said, you can't let your visual impairment interfere with your life, because if you do, 
What's the point in waking up in the morning? <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, I look back at things that have happened in my life and whether it be to the bullying or various different negative things that have happened, even when I lost my sight. And I look back and I think, well, I could be down in the dumps and I could live in the past and I can let this drag me down for the rest of my life. But then I always think to myself, only a fool falls over what's behind them. And really, if you want to go on with your life, you just need to grab life by the horns and do it because no matter what happens, nobody's going to drag you along. Nobody's going to do it for you. You're stuck with the life you've got. Why not make the most of it? And I think for everything that you've done and you've achieved... All the voluntary work that you're doing, you could be sitting at home doing absolutely nothing, feeling sorry for yourself. Where would that get you? Nowhere. You're absolutely right. Can I ask you, did you suffer from any mental health problems due to your visual impairment at all throughout your life? I did. I did very much so. I thought that in the very beginning, because I was being told by everybody, you're coping so well, you're coping so well, I kind of thrived on that. I was 19 years old. Never met anybody blind, never had any experience of blindness, so I didn't know how to deal with it. But everybody kept telling me I was great and I was coping and I was marvellous. And see, because of that, I became terrified of letting people down, Stephen. So what I did in the end was brush my feelings aside and I just got on with coping. And it was a number of years later when something completely unrelated happened that I was in a very vulnerable state. I I had a complete nervous breakdown and it was like night and day. Honestly, it, it just happened and something snapped and I just didn't know how to cope anymore. And I tell you, it was actually the best thing that could have happened because it took me a wee while to get back on my feet. But I spoke to people. I spoke to a lot of people that had various different breakdowns for different reasons, not just sight loss but you know I'd spoken to a fireman who had had a breakdown because he had pulled too many dead bodies out of burning buildings and he had just had enough a girl who'd been abused as a child so all these things all these people and their experiences taught me that I'm no different to anybody else I have my breaking point just like other people and it helped me actually cope and build my life back up and I thought you know I just want to get on with my life and try and do my best to share my knowledge of sight loss and my experience with other people because then my journey hasn't been in vain if I can help somebody just that tiny little bit with a tiny little bit of information that that makes a difference in their lives then my journey hasn't been in vain Absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through the, the mental side of it, although I think the majority of people who have a visual impairment probably do suffer from it. Most specifically, if they have um, times where they struggle to get into work or employment, that, that can be a, a very difficult mentality to deal with. I also had a period where I was stuck in my house for two years. I couldn't get out for a social life. I couldn't get out to work. I was basically I, I get given my ESA allowance and was told, that's it, I mean do nothing. So what's, what's the point in giving you to, the, the money that they give you and expect you to do nothing? It's, it's crazy and, and that's why I wasn't too happy with the DWP. I also wasn't happy with the way the job centre had handled it either because I, I was given the ESA allowance and I was told I don't need to go and look for work unlike the people who are on the job seekers allowance. I was basically said, right, there's some money, don't need to do anything else. But purely because I hated sitting indoors, I was going down to the job centre constantly, every day, and I was thumping down the door and I was saying, look, I need something to do, I need work, I need to get out and do things. I'm not sitting in my room doing absolutely nothing anymore, because it was absolutely killing me. 
mentally. I really did thought, think that it was just going to end it one one evening, and it was it was really really tough men- mentally to be able to deal with that. I eventually got in touch with Holly Wilson, who's the volunteer coordinator here at RNIB, and she sent me an email. In the email, there was a couple of links for different volunteering opportunities. One of the links was to go and volunteer with the hospital broadcasting service, which I'm still doing today, on a Friday. And so, if it wasn't for me getting in there, and then Holly also getting me involved with RNIB, I honestly don't know where, where I would be today. I don't, know, I, I don't know how much longer I would have coped with being able to be stuck in the house and, and doing nothing, because it's, it's a horrendous thing to deal with, and that's, that's one of the main reasons why I got joined Connect, was because I wanted to be able to go out all over the country of Scotland and indeed the UK, go into the smaller communities within the UK, find people like myself who have struggled with the mentality of living with a visual impairment and try and get them out and socialise and get them into work and give them a life rather than just wasting it. Absolutely. You know, I admire your your strength of spirit and character. I really do. And it's people like yourself that obviously R&IB are just desperate to get involved because it's people like you that inspire other people to go on and spread the word of RNIB as well. So it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. It really has, Stephen. The very best of luck with the future. And thank you for joining us here on RNIB Connect Radio. Thank you very much for having me, Jill. It's been an absolute pleasure to be able to share my story and hear your story as well. So thank you for having me on. For more downloads like these, visit rnibconnectradio.org.uk slash podcasts.